Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today, I'm privileged to have real estate litigator and educator, Al Fazio. Hi, Al. How are you Hi, today? Hi, John. Doing fine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, oh, it's, all, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Before we delve into the new laws passed by the New York State Legislature that take effect this month, I'm always fascinated by people's journeys through life. So where'd you grow up? Well, John, I, I grew up, I was born on the Lower East Side, grew up in uh, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn through the 60s and I've uh, uh, been working now for 40 years uh, as an attorney uh, in a firm in Manhattan. I'm a partner there. Uh, the firm is Caputer Fazio Jacoya. And as you mentioned, I do real estate transactional work, litigation, and a lot of, a lot of work involving real estate brokerage. That's fascinating. Um, so what prompted you to want to study law? Well, John, I, I think it was that a lot of people who got to know me thought I had a pretty big mouth and that I never shut up. So I thought I my I believe their feeling was that would be a great profession. I was kind of maybe thinking along the same lines and I took that road and I have not looked back since. Right, right. And they're still telling yeah, me to shut up, John. So that's how it's playing I'm out. I'm going to do that. Trust me. You know, I thought maybe you had somebody in the family because I had a an uncle that was uh, a politician in Philly, and uh, he said he had access to law books. And he said, "If you go to law school, I'll give you the law books." And I said, "No, you have to pay for law school." That's right. So, good point. Uh, good point, John. <laughs> anyway, speaking of law, uh, why did you go into real estate law? Uh, especially litigation as compared to, say, going into corporate law or divorce? You know, John, when you start out as a younger attorney, you try different interests, different different uh, uh, areas of law, different practices. And uh, I got to try uh, divorce and, and personal injury and other areas, and you realize pretty quickly what you're well-suited for and what you're not. And one of the things I learned early on is to stick with what you know and stay away from the things that you don't know and to tell people when you don't know something, uh, it's a much safer play and refer it out to somebody who's an expert in that field. So uh, the older I've gotten, the more you realize how these other areas of law um, have so many different nuances to them. It's impossible to be a jack of all trades. And uh, I always enjoyed real estate. I enjoy, I've always enjoyed the people involved in real estate. And as I said, uh, I have a niche with a lot with the real estate brokerage community. As you know, I represent several uh, uh, realtor associations in the state, and uh, I've got to know and become very friendly with uh, that group of uh, those group of individuals. And I'm happy I chose that that path. Now, is that where you're you're doing your education? When I say educator, real estate educator. Yes, I was. I in the past, I had. Uh, uh, well, I've been I've been teaching and giving seminars in real estate for probably as long as I've been an attorney, maybe 35, over 35 years. And uh, I started 
As a matter of fact, I started with the, the Long Island Board of Realtors uh, and then moved from there to uh, different organizations in the state. I, I, I did a stint at NYU School of Continuing Education. Uh, I, I did uh, work in education in the uh, Real Estate Institute in the city uh, for a while. So uh, it's gotten to be a uh, it's gotten to be a, a good uh, uh, background for me, uh, not only in in practicing, but in uh in helping others learn the profession as well. We have a, a mutual friend who, uh, when you said New York, uh, NYU, um, who was uh, John Vitaretti. And uh, is that where you guys met up? John and I have been uh, friends for a long time and and I, I take a pleasure in uh, uh, corresponding with him when all these new pieces of legislation and Things that affect our industry first come out. We uh, we discuss them and bally it about. So uh, yes, John and I uh, uh, had our start at NYU, and uh, uh, we've been friends for a long, long time. He's a great guy. So uh, you're talking about these new laws that are affecting real estate agents, property owners, and also business owners. The first one, this new legislation or new law that came out, the first one is flood disclosure in residential leases. Can you uh, explain that a little further? You know, John, there's been a lot of, uh, well, there's always legislation uh, affecting the real estate market and trying to stay on top of all of it is gets to be daunting. But uh, there are three pieces of legislation that take effect just this month in June. So it's a very timely topic. Uh, and the first that you brought up is uh, flood disclosures in residential leases starting Ju June 21st of this month. Any landlord who prepares a residential lease has to indicate in the lease and give notice to the tenant uh, whether the property is located or wholly or partially in a uh, FEMA designated floodplain. Uh, whether it is in a flood hazard area based on a 100-year floodplain uh, or whether it is based on a 500-year flood floodplain, according to FEMA's current maps. Uh, and uh, this is now a requirement uh, so that landlords will need to know that they have to incorporate that. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of these companies that prepare these residential leases like Blumberg and other companies, will incorporate uh, those clauses. And every tenant now should know they have a right. And, and one of the things that the reasons why they, they put that in is that a standard insurance policy for a tenant, a renter's insurance policy, John, typically does not cover flood damage. Um, so that the tenant really should know that if the unit they're, they're renting is in a designated flood zone uh, that their policy, their regular policy is not going to cover it. They might want to get a special policy through the federal government to cover them. Not cheap. Uh, nevertheless, if they know in advance, uh, they'd be able to contact uh, the federal program to see what the cost may be. And that may sway a tenant, John, into uh, making a decision as to whether or not he or she wants to proceed with that particular unit or go to another unit that may not be in a flood zone and may not cost them that much money. So that was the impetus in that piece of legislation being passed. Obviously, it's for the tenant's protection. 
uh, and it's more of a disclosure obligation so the tenant has uh, full knowledge and understanding of what they're getting themselves into. That's very good. Um, now, are these uh, leases that have this uh, uh, in them, uh, are they just year-round or is it seasonal also? Because we have a lot, you know, our, we have a seasonal market more so than year-round. John, my, my understanding that's involved in all, it doesn't make a difference where you are, when it is, uh, for what period of time that it's effective uh, in all leases. And uh, as long as it's residential, uh, it has to have that designation. Whether you're renting right. for three months, six months, or two years, you've got the right to know whether if there's a flood, will your belongings, your personal property be covered? Uh, and the state's position is you have a right to know. Gotcha. Um, do you recommend real estate brokers uh, not prepare their leases? Well, John, that's a you're 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 posing a uh, you're asking a a question that uh, I have uh, continuously uh, uh, discussed with the real estate brokerage industry. By definition, um, real estate brokers real estate brokers in New York State, contrary to what people may think, can prepare contracts. Um, and a contract is a lease agreement, is it not? Uh, but the standard understanding is what about a real estate contract for the sale or and purchase of real estate? Um, in most of the jurisdictions, and when I say jurisdictions, I mean outside the downstate region, New York City, the five boroughs, Westchester, uh, Long Island, uh, it's not unusual for a real estate broker to prepare the contract. Um, but it is unusual to see a real estate contract prepared by a broker in the downstate region. There's no prohibition against it so long as the contract, uh, if it's prepared by a broker, has an attorney approval clause and a right of rescission, um, as you see in all these other contracts, whether you go to New Jersey or upstate or, or Florida. Um, the same thing would apply to a lease. A real estate broker uh, would be engaging in the unauthorized practice of law, if the real estate agent prepares the lease on behalf of the landlord and does not have in it or place in it a right of rescission uh, and an attorney approval clause. So uh, the position that I take to all uh, real estate agents, especially downstate, is the landlord is the one to prepare the contract uh, or the tenant, I guess, subject to the landlord's approval but the real estate agent should not be doing it. Uh, and if and if an agent is doing it, uh, it needs to contain those provisions. And also uh, the broker or manager of the office should know that the agent is doing it. It might be a broker policy not to have the agent do it. Uh, so I, I would be cautious about that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Let's talk about that second law, uh, inside mold disclosures. John, in a lot of cases, you're seeing uh, whether it's it's uh, uh, sales or even, you know, uh, rentals. Uh, the concern is mold and its effect on the on a body, uh, the physical uh, effect it has uh, on, a, on a person so that New York State uh, also has been concerned about that. And on June 14th of this month, uh, New York State is now going to add in its what's called a property condition disclosure statement, uh, which has which until 
June 14th, up until June 14th, is a 48-question document. As of June 14th, they're going to add a 49th question to it. Uh, and this statement, according to New York state law, currently is supposed to be given to every single buyer uh, of uh, residential property, uh, one to four family property. Uh, it exempts condos and co-ops, uh, but it's given to one to four family buyers, prospective buyers, before they make an offer on the property, because it's it indicates the condition of the property. Just imagine a buyer making an offer. The buyer's got a right to know what kind of condition is the property in, because my offer is going to be based on that on that condition. Uh, a seller is required to give that document to every buyer. If the law says, though, if the seller does not give that document, uh, the buyer then, if the buyer moves forward and buys the property, the buyer will get a $500 credit at the time of closing. So again, this tends to be geographic uh, in its, in in its uh, application. Most downstate, we find in many cases, in most cases, uh, sellers do not give the property the condition disclosure statement to buyers for fear that if they do, and if for some reason they make a statement that's not accurate, that they're afraid that they might get sued and it might be litigation as to misrepresentation or fraud of some kind. Upstate New York, you don't see this problem. You see that they do offer it in most cases, um, and there's no, they, they know, there's no concern about the effect of doing so. So that is tends to, that tends to be uh, geographic, uh, depending on where you live. As of June fourteenth, the forty ninth question is going to be: uh, Has the property been tested for indoor mold? And if and the second part of that question would be: uh, it, Has the seller performed any testing for indoor mold? And if so, uh, the buyer is entitled to a copy of that. Now, of course, the seller's answer would be either be yes, no, or I'm sorry I don't to interrupt know. you, Al, but um, how can somebody get in touch with you if they had more questions? And I'm going to have you back again because you have a lot of knowledge, and I, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear that. Sure. So how can they have any questions for you? John, I can be reached. I'm, I'm in Manhattan. My office is at 212-509-9595. Um, and uh, my email address is alfazio at cf gny.com. Fantastic. Thank you, Al Fazio, for your time and erudition. This is John Christopher for Real Life, so stay right where you are. We'll be right back after the short break with our next guest. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have Hamptons real estate broker and also New York metropolitan broker, Bob Katine. Hey, Bob, how are you today? I'm good, John. How are you? You sound great. Um, you know, Bob, I consider you a renaissance man. You're a trained engineer, a consummate broker, a former airline pilot, now a certified pilot instructor, and last but not least, a bartender extraordinaire. Did I leave anything out? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think that covers most everything. How about Jack bon of all... Okay. How about Bon Vivant? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or how about Thank Jack you. of Jack of all trades, master of none? I hear you. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, before we talk about the uh, New York metro market and then the Hampton market, I want to ask you an aviation question. 
when All you right. were training some, whenever you've been trained, when you've trained somebody in the past, did you ever experience something out of the ordinary that you thought this person should not be flying? Oh, uh, now you've put me on the spot. Yeah, of course. I've been instructing for 52 years. So over a 52 wow. year period, I've had a number of uh, students that um, either scared uh, me uh, quite a bit or I counseled about finding a different um, uh, hobby or career. But um, I'm still here. Haven't um, broken anything. No airplane crashes. So I'm um, feeling very confident about it. And uh, owning an airplane helps me. Today, I'm at the airport. And uh, when we're done, I'm going to be taking a couple of my buyer customers up in the air to see the areas where the houses are that I'm going to be showing them over the next two days um, because they were concerned about, you know, where they are in relationship to the airport, to the ocean beaches, to the bay beaches. So I do this. They get excited. Usually Uh, I get to write off some costs and um, it's a win-win for everybody. Great idea. That's that's a fabulous idea. I mean, when you think about it, because a lot of times I know, especially people come out here the first time, they um, they don't really have their uh, location device on, so to speak. In other words, what directions? Where where's the ocean? Where's that in relation to this? And and you can do that from the air so much easier. Oh yeah, it's hard to show driving people around. And look, you're a boater. You own a boat. I own a boat. If I'm showing waterfront property that's boatable, not in the open ocean, I'll take uh, potential customers to see what uh, it would be like coming home to a potential house they may buy. Right. That's so smart. Okay. So uh, let me ask you, as an agent in the city, you deal with co-op boards. Are you doing virtual meetings still, uh, or is that something from the past with COVID? We're still doing virtual meetings um, in general. Now, Sometimes we'll still do an interview on site, but there's a lot of residual from COVID that's affecting the real estate market in in New York, as well as the real estate market in the Hamptons. Okay. Let me ask another question. Are some boards easier than others? And if so, why? Um, (laughs) Yes. Um, Co-op boards are all over the place. They are those boards that feel that being a co-op, they can get around fair housing laws. Um, And there are those boards that are just very happy to, you know, help their sellers get uh, their apartments sold and buyers get an apartment and get in to a building. Um, You really need to have your broker agent um, give you information or investigate a particular board before going all the way to doing a board package, uh, which is very time consuming and expensive. Right. And uh, as again, it's time. How long does it sometimes take uh, before you get an offer to the closing? Well, I mean, this is the the problem also. So as a listing broker, 
you may have a listing on for, in this market, three or four months. And then you get a buyer. And if the board is a tough board and the buyer is not going to pass a board interview or is not going to be able to get by the requirements of the co-op, then you're just spinning your wheels. I mean, some of the board packages, I recently did one for a building in the uh, Greenwich Village. It was 200 pages long and had to be 10 copies bound for the board. Has a lot of work, a lot of expense. And if they get a board turned down, then the seller's unhappy, the buyer's unhappy, and certainly as the agent, you're unhappy. Right, right, wow. So it, it's not an easy, it's not a slam dunk all the time, is what you're saying. Not at all. I mean, it's easier on condos, because condos, you're buying a real property, not shares in a corporation, and there's usually less um, hassle to go through with a condo board as compared to a co-op board. Right, right, right. Um, so, but condos uh, typically are, are lower price, not lower price, but if you decide to be between a, uh, a co-op and a condo, the um, the condo will be um, less uh, in price than say a um, comparable uh, co-op. That's not true, it's the reverse. Oh, it's reverse. Co-ops, yes, co-ops are less expensive square foot per square foot than condos in general. Then in Manhattan, they're building lots of new condos. They're not building lots of co-ops. Most co-ops are converted buildings. And new construction in Manhattan is more expensive per square foot than most older construction. So you have a double whammy there. In addition, the thing with a condo is you own the property. You can rent it out if you want. A co-op, there are, most co-ops have restrictions on rental. Then when you own a condo, you pay a monthly maintenance fee and you pay real estate taxes. In a co-op, you pay a monthly fee that includes the maintenance for the building plus your portion of the building's real estate taxes. And then at the end of the year, you're given a percentage that you're allowed to deduct on your income tax. Oh, great. Thank you for the education there. Um, how is the rental market in the city or surrounding areas there? Well, the market in the city has been in flux lately. Three years ago, everybody was jumping on the bandwagon to get out because of COVID, uh, especially since they, most people were being forced to work from home. And if you live in a 800 foot apartment with your spouse and a couple of kids, it's pretty hard to work there. Then those people that all of a sudden went to the Jersey Shore or to the Hamptons, or to the Poconos, or to the Catskills, or in some cases to Europe, were working from home and figured, well, this has actually become quite easy to do. I don't need an apartment anymore. And so there was all of a sudden a glut of apartments for sale in the city. 
Well, now there's still residual issues from COVID in that many companies are requiring employees to come back to the office at least for a certain number of days a week. And that has thrown a monkey wrench into everything for both the people that were living in their weekend home full time somewhere or had already sold their apartment. Um, And so it's the market is just all over the place. Wow. So so do you have any predictions for uh, six months from now? How how's how is it going to shake out? You know, I've been selling real estate. Uh, at least part-time for 50 years now in seven different states. I've seen ups and downs. I've seen the cycles go for 10 years. I've seen them go uh, after like 2008 for only two years. I wish I had a crystal ball that could tell you. All I know is with the prices where people are trying to get right now, and at my age, if I'm going to buy another piece of property, it's going to be something that I'm going to keep forever because I can't worry about what the resale value is going to be. Good advice. That's very good advice. Uh, speaking of advice, what what do you what kind of advice do you offer to a a buyer coming into the city, and you know that's looking? Well, <clears throat> you know, the other thing that's always been in flux is neighborhood. All right. And now, you know, as well as I do with fair housing, et cetera, that you can't really push someone into a neighborhood or not. But I do give them advice to investigate all the different neighborhoods and decide what they believe is the neighborhood that they want to be in. Right. I've had people come in and say they want to be in Brooklyn and they could be in any location. Well, In our listing system, there are 68 neighborhoods in Brooklyn. So to do a search for those people in 68 neighborhoods um, uh, is ludicrous. I mean, it's it's you you come up with hundreds and hundreds of listings that may be all the wrong things. And there's been, as you probably know, big changes, just like there have been in the Hamptons when. I bought the land that I built my house on in Sag Harbor in 1998. Sag Harbor wasn't considered the Hamptons. Now it's the hottest spot out east for the over 40 set. Same thing in the city. I remember in the 60s that if you were on Sutton Place, you had made it in the world. Now Sutton is one of the most affordable areas in Manhattan. Why is that so? Because, you know, uh, I actually, when I was living in the city, I lived um, by a Sutton place. And that to me was like one of my favorite neighborhoods. And I recall, I guess it was a few years back, uh, brokers taking me and showing various apartments. And long story short, said, oh, Sutton place is the one of the hardest places to sell. Why is that? It just didn't well, make any sense to me. No, it switched. Go, going back 40 or 50 years. Sutton Place was where everyone that was moneyed would get a pied-à-terre. And they wanted to be away from everything. Now, everybody wants to be in the thick of things. They want to be able to walk out their front door 
and have 25 restaurants that they can go to, three grocery stores, a park where you can walk your dog, um, and the whole Sutton Place area does not provide that. And right. so there's That's been so there's been a big. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Bob, but if people had more questions, which and I have to have you back because we didn't even get to the Hamptons. But if somebody had more questions for you, how could they reach you? You can reach me at Robert period Kittine, K-I-T-T-I-N-E at Corcoran.com or on my cell phone, 631-374-9652. It's on 24 hours a day. Great, Bob. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher broadcasting here in the beautiful village of Southampton, New York, on the only national public radio station on Long Island. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to me at john.christopher at sir.com. In the meantime, be sure to have an awesome journey. have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM. Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.